your Bibles. Uh, we have been preaching through the book of Mark. Uh, we're going to be reading today from Mark chapter 9, so go ahead and stand up. We're going to be uh, reading from Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Um, and so we stand when we read God's Word just as a way to show honor uh, to the author of all creation. Um, and so again, as we're reading, this is uh, Mark 9, 38 through 50. If you have one of the black Bibles from the back, it's on page 845. This is God's word. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Giggle every time all those salt words are used. It should be a fun passage. So this is... Intense from the get-go. Mark just read, um, not that big of a passage, and the word hell was brought up. The word amputation essentially was brought up. This is an intense passage. So our job as a church is to teach what's here, but also to try to explain why it's here. So hopefully you walk out of here with an understanding of this passage and maybe why this is placed here in the Bible and here in context for us to hear from today. That being said... God's Spirit's the only thing that can move into a heart. So I'm going to just stop and pray a second ask that God shakes us up a little bit this morning. So bow with me. Lord, uh, you are good. We know you're good. We see you prove it over and over again in the Bible. And yet you're extremely pointed a lot of times. So I pray that your Spirit would be moving, that it would be hitting the targets it needs to hit and convicting the hearts that need to be convicted. And what needs to be done in light of this passage will be done, God. So be with us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you guys get Luke back next week. Make sure you hug him and squeeze him. He loves chest bumps and pats on the butt if you're another guy, all that. Just He's a former athlete, so just he's, he's really glad to be back. He's been texting. He's chomping at the bit to come back. So we're excited to have him back. That being said, I got this passage. Uh, next week, he'll just kind of walk through what the Lord's been teaching him in his sabbatical. That was kind of one of the main reasons for him getting away. He's the lead guy. He carries the most weight. He has the most kind of burden as he thinks about long-term for this church, and we wanted him to go away and hear from God. So we're going to hear next week kind of where he's at with all that. So it'll be a good Sunday. Um, for now, this passage is just weird. The placement of where kind of Jesus calls some stuff out, the intensity in the middle is weird. It's, it's just been kind of perplexing for me a lot of this week. But I think I finally kind of narrowed it down to what Jesus is trying to say. And it's essentially this. Christians specifically 
I stole this from another pastor, are always fighting the wrong battles. Christians tend to fight the wrong battles. People just in general come into the world kind of critical specifically of other people. My son can spot out everything I've ever done wrong, yet I can see him take a baseball bat to his brother's head, knock a tooth out, walk him through that and say, what was wrong with that situation? He has no clue what he did wrong in that situation. He knows that Roman is at fault and deserved a bat to the head at that moment. That is the human nature. We do not see by nature our own faults, yet we've got like X-ray Superman vision for the faults of people around us, specifically those kind of close to us. I think that's the gist of what Jesus is trying to get to. This section, he is teaching only his disciples. So picture it as a context of a church. He's talking to Christians, people who follow him, or mostly people who follow him. He is speaking to Christians. What does he have to say? Christians are always picking the wrong battles. Here's kind of the big idea I gave this section. A gospel culture fights for childlike celebration towards others. And it has a wartime violence towards our own sin. So a true, the gospel is the good news of Jesus coming to earth to restore humanity back unto himself. That truth comes into you, you trust it, you believe it, you are now saved. Now in light of that, what's the culture it produces? One of them is you are shrunken at the foot of the cross, so you no longer are sizing up everyone all the time as you constantly remind yourself of the cross. So a gospel culture fights for childlike celebration for other Christians meaning you're looking for ways to praise other people, and it has a wartime, a passionate, a violence towards your own sin. How do I get that? Because this passage was intense. So here's how we're going to teach this. I'm going to read through it. I'm going to teach it as like a flyby and pull out the really intense things that were brought up in this passage, and then we're going to rewind and walk back through it with four questions that I think should be addressed to each heart in the room. So the first thing we're going to do Fly over it and just see what Jesus is saying here. So walk with me. Mark 9, verse 38. Mark just read it, but I think hearing from this passage a lot today is what the Lord wants. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Just got real. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better you enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Here's the two tensions I've wrestled with thinking through this passage. First one, it seems random. Jesus starts off by kind of calling him out for creating this division amongst another guy who's probably a believer. And then he just rails the disciples and basically tells them to amputate everything in their life that would ever lead them into sin. 
And then he ends with, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now go in peace. It seems random. I mean, the book of Proverbs is intentionally random. If you read the book of Proverbs, each verse is kind of a new fortune cookie sounding thing. Be a good wife, otherwise your husband will want to live in the attic rather than live with you. Be smart with your money because blah, blah, blah. Be, it's all kind of random fortune cookies mixed together, and it's this proverbial way of teaching. This is not the case. This whole section is one teaching point from Jesus for his disciples to hear. So is it random? No, it's intentional. Here's why I think so. It begins and ends with the same sort of exhortation. It begins with, if you see anyone doing anything in my name, no matter how insignificant, if they're just giving a glass of water, if they're just giving a drop of water to someone who's parched in my name, praise God, that's a good thing. And then the middle section is, but let's talk about you guys. And then he just pounces on the disciples. And then he wraps it up with, you guys are the salt of the earth. Don't forget. Be at peace with one another. I think the tension that Jesus is getting at is the tension Jesus brought up when he said, judge not lest you be judged. That John 3.16 used to be the verse that anyone in America would know. I don't think most people know that anymore. We're pretty secular. Church isn't a regular thing for a lot of people. But judge not lest you be judged, dang it. We know that verse. The verse says this, judge not lest you be judged. You've got a plank in your own eye. Deal with that plank Take it out by God's grace, and then you can go and dress the speck of dust in his eye. This passage is unpacking that in real time for the disciples who had just picked out the speck of dust that wasn't actually a speck of dust. It was actually a good thing, all the while avoiding their logs in their own eyes. So that's the first thing. I think it's intentional. God wants these two things together. And here's kind of the bigger thing. It's extreme. The word hell is here. It's intense. If I could summarize the two things, Jesus says, the tiniest little Christian act done by a believer is going to be rewarded for eternity. Anything in your body that's moving you away from God is sending you to hell where the fire never ends. That's intense. Now, why? Is Jesus like me, just kind of a bad, lazy dad, where when I don't want to get up and don't want to address my kids, I just use the biggest threat I can. If you don't come here, I will. Is he threatening? Doesn't seem lined up with Jesus. Hell is brought up time and time again here. The word hell is this word, Gehenna. Bible-believing Christians believe in hell. Gehenna is the world in the New Testament that's used to describe it. It's an actual place south of Jerusalem as well. Gehenna started off, it was Mount Hinnom, back in the Old Testament. This is a little teachy, but it's helpful. It's where old sacrifices to pagan gods happen, and a lot of sacrifices involve sacrificing babies and children. So it was a place where you went to sacrifice kids to these foreign gods, just south of Jerusalem. And Hinnom means drum, so they call it the Valley of Drums because what history says is there was drums beating to drown out the noise of all the cries and the tears going on there. So Jesus is saying, if you don't deal with your sin, you are going to Gehenna, which those Jews had a picture for. They knew. Except his Gehenna also was a representation of the real Gehenna, hell, which exists forever where the fire does not fade. So this is extreme. 
Now, either Jesus is puffing up and trying to threaten, or this is a loving God addressing us through his word and pleading with us very matter-of-factly. I'm going with that one. Jesus never had to puff up his chest and be bigger than who he was. He was always way more subtle than he could have been. He was, he was pretty subdued. This passage is him matter-of-factly saying, listen up. We've got two, 300 people in this room. Some of you are holding on to things right now that if you don't remove, you will walk into hell holding that very same thing and you will be there forever where the fire does not end. Tim Keller teaches in New York, has a lot of people ask a lot of questions about the Bible. He says this, a lot of people ask me, do you believe in a hell with a literal fire? He says, the good news is that this language is surely metaphorical. Real fire eventually consumes its fuel and goes out. We all know that. But this fire cannot die. So we're not merely talking of a physical fire. The bad news is that this metaphor is therefore referring to something obviously worse than a physical fire. So Jesus is talking to Christians saying there is stuff in your life that is leading you to hell. Non-Christian, if you're in the room, keep coming back. Not every passage is about hell, but it's here for a reason. Christian, I'll just remind you of this. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, unpacking this reality. So most of the motivation and the thought that come with hell should be a motivation in the life of a Christian for us to see just how horrific our sin really is, that it deserves that. I mean, if I heard of a punishment of someone, his punishment is... He's got to pay this and spend this much time in prison. And I thought, well, that's just not fair. There's two realities. Either it really wasn't fair or my view of justice is limited and I don't really get what justice is in that instance. When I look at hell, I can't wrap my head around the justice there necessarily. So I've got to take a backseat to Jesus and trust that the justice involved with sending someone to hell is just. And that what sin deserves is hell or God dying. Two options and two options alone. That's it. That's the backdrop of this message. Just I feel a little tense in the room. That's good. That's where the disciples should have been. Gehenna. They They should have triggered and said, this just got serious. Now in that backdrop, now we're going to walk through it again and just kind of ask the questions that I think Jesus wanted the disciples asking of themselves. So this is where we just ask God and the Holy Spirit to kind of inspect us and invade us and pull out what needs to be pulled out. So here's our first question based off this passage. How do you create divisions among followers of Jesus? Where do I get that? Right off the bat, verse 38, John, so he wrote a book of the Bible, he's amazing, he's a disciple, but he has this recorded of him here teach he said to him teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us if john and the disciples had their way before jesus ever went to a cross there would have been two denominations in jerusalem is that not crazy jesus has not done his full earthly work yet, yet the disciples are trying to say, there's an us and there's an them. There's two categories of Christians here. And Jesus says, silly boys, do not stop them, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. 
For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water or drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says there are two types of people, those for me, those against me. There are those Christians for me, there are those Lutherans for me, there are those Lutherans against me, there are those Catholics for me, those Catholics against me. There is no middle ground on Jesus where you kind of push him off to the side and say, I'll deal with him later. You are for Jesus or against Jesus. But we like to, in our pride, create all these divisions and say, yeah, but he's not as reformed as I would like. He's too Armenian. Those of you who don't even know Armenians, good for you. I hope you never get to the level of pride I got to in my life where I would start to distinguish people based off their theological convictions as they're figuring out Jesus. That's what the disciples are trying to do. He's not with us. Jesus says, there is no us. It's me, and if you're with me, you're with me. You're not the leaders of this thing. So how do you create divisions among? Is it denominational divisions? Is it ministry philosophy? You think ministry should be done this way? Financial divisions, this type of person in this type of neighborhood, this type, we separate so many ways. Preferential divisions, I don't like the music. I love Brazelton. I think Brazelton's whatever. You can divide up Christianity any way you want. That does not matter. I am the worst at this. This has been a hard sort of passage to teach because I think God's been working with this on me for about a year now. And he's just reminding me, like, I've got a long way to go. Because if I, you were to ask me, if someone couldn't come to Redemption Gateway, where would you send them elsewhere here in the Southeast Valley? I would struggle to send someone elsewhere. Now, either that's because this is the place where Jesus is doing his work here in the Southeast Valley. This is the hub of Christianity for the Southeast Valley. Or my view of other Christians is limited and judgmental and probably off. Probably the latter. This is going to happen in this church because we, are, we stand up to read the Bible. The guy up here preaches from the Bible. We hold the Bible high. Other churches we're going to look at and say they don't hold the Bible as high. Us or them and us. We start to divide it. There's no divisions in Christianity. Here's kind of how I, I want to wrap up each of these questions with just what I think Jesus' recommendation is for us. And I know that's pretentious, but I'm up here so I can. Here's what I think Jesus' recommendation to us in light of this. Celebrate the smallest moments in the kingdom of God. I love to preach and teach and people email me and say, you really made this come alive for me or you helped me with this. So I get more praise than I ever deserve. Yet every Sunday, two things happen. I always have water to drink and I always have great breath. Someone puts water bottles back here for us Who? I don't know. But Jesus says, if someone gives you a drink of water, by no means will they lose a reward. Celebrate that. And someone back there fills that back little joint. Don't go back there because those are mine. Fills it with Altoids. Amazing. And another, I think family in our church fills at least the men's restrooms with mints and hard candies. Amazing. So I always have water and I always have fresh breath even though I drink a ton of coffee. How has that happened? Because there are Christians who are doing the little things well and we should celebrate that. What? Oh, wow. Is that who brings the water, Dave Roach? <laughs> but just imagine that atmosphere. You come into church and people are getting celebrated for the tiniest of things. It's like childlike celebration. We have a candy machine that dispenses jelly beans for my son when he goes number two. And we go nuts! 
We should go nuts for the little things, the water, the breath mints. The, I actually read my Bible once this week. I'd never really read it ever. Praise God, God is working in your life. Luke Simmons, at the end of 2014, had a kind of a, how was your last year sort of assessment. One of his questions was this. Are you noticing God in other people's lives? He phrased it with, are you seeing evidences of God's grace in the lives of people around you? Meaning, are you seeing when God is moving with other people? It's now July. This is your six-month checkup. How is it going? Jesus is reminding us that should be an emphasis. In our kids, in our spouse, in the people in our small group who annoy us, in the people who we love in our small group, whatever it is, celebrate little things. This is good. Next one. Here's our next question. How do you create obstacles to others following Jesus? Where do I get that from? Verse... 42, let's read this. This is where Jesus just kind of gets crazy with just intense language. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Translation, if you cause a stumbling block or you cause something in someone else's life that caused them to move away from Jesus in a substantial way, It'd be better if you were drowned right now in the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. Now we can kind of fluff that away and say, oh, but Jesus loves us. Yes, Jesus gave his life for us. But he speaks intensely for a reason. Whoever causes one of these little children to sin, it's better if they'd be drowned. So how are we creating obstacles in the life of other people? How are we creating obstacles? Most of us would be like, I never cause anyone. Like, I can think of like really evil people who entice children into lifestyles they shouldn't be into. No, just in general, I think there's two camps you can kind of lean into. Licentiousness or legalism. Licentiousness is this. You enjoy the freedom of God, and that's about it. Meaning, licentiousness is just living kind of freely. So God in Christ now has forgiven you for all things, and the Bible essentially says you are free. You You are a free man or woman. Enjoy life, and that's your motto. Legalism is, you may have Jesus, but the way you kind of get more approval from Jesus is by adding more and more rules. So no rules, as a matter of fact, rules are bad, more rules is better. I think those are the two camps we lead people into stumbling with. Licentiousness is this, you are allowed to drink according to the Bible. Some of you say, amen, okay, that's true. Nobody can come to this unless they get goofy with their studying of Scripture and say, you cannot have a drink of alcohol. That's just not in the Bible. Sorry. If you think that, we can talk later. But it also does not say you are free to drink regardless of what it does to people around you or in your circles. So my question for the people in this camp and who love this, when are you saying no or have you ever said no to anything that you are allowed to enjoy by God's grace simply for the sake of another person. So we have a lot of people from kind of traditional church backgrounds. Have you said no to kind of your preferences and how church should or shouldn't be done to kind of help them along? Have you said no to alcohol because you know that one guy, just one guy in your small group, just it rubs them? That's what Jesus is 
Are you causing obstacles in the life of people, the little children? Little children is, means little kids, or it means new believers, or more than likely, it means kind of young, fresh believers figuring this thing out. How are you coming alongside the people that are figuring this thing out slowly but surely? Or legalism. This is where I fall into. I, I don't know why. I, think, I just think I'm amazing, and I want people to be as amazing as me. So how do I get people to be as amazing as me? I create rules for them that I think will line them up with me. That's wrong. Legalism is you in the life of another believer adding burdens that don't belong there. Oh, you're reading the Bible? How do you read it? I just kind of open it and wherever I fall I read, oh, sweetie, that's the wrong way to read the Bible. (laughs) You have to read the whole story of the Bible. That's the only way to read the Bible. Prayer? Do you pray? Yeah, I pray in the car. Oh, dude, let's talk. Jesus says pray in your closet. (laughs) Only. Like we've got this version of super Christianity that we ourselves can't even live up to and we want other people to live up to this. That's not Jesus. Either you're saying yes to too much stuff to enjoy this life too much, or you're saying yes to too many rules to create some super Christianity that doesn't really exist. I read this blog this week that really convicted me, and it's basically eight ways to tell if you're a bully Christian. He said a bully discipleship maker. So you camp out on rules too much, and you pounce on people with rules too much. How you start to know that this might be you, we'll look at them. Eight signs you're a Christian bully. First one, you are easily annoyed. Oh, man. All the parents, are you, that's like 23 hours of the day as a parent. <laughs> Meaning like people just constantly aren't living up to your standard and it irks you and you get annoyed. That's not from the grace of God. That's not how Jesus, Jesus is never annoyed with me, ever. Matter of fact, there's a, in the, Luke, there's a way that he's telling people to pray. He's like, bug me like a kid that has to go to the restroom. Just keep pounding me because you know, just bug me, bug me, bug me. I'm never going to be annoyed by you. Second one, you are unable or unwilling to learn from the person you're discipling. You're here, Jesus is here, and they're down here, and they need to get up to your level. They've got nothing to offer you. Your kids have nothing to offer. Your teenagers have nothing to offer you in how they view the world or God or grace. Baloney. You can learn from anyone. It's called humility. It's what the Bible constantly calls us to. Number three. You're unwilling to admit when you're wrong. If you admit when you're wrong, you are no longer the saver. That's an issue, so you've got to just keep a facade. You are wrong a lot, and I am wrong a lot. Number four, you do most of the talking and little listening. This ties in with number two. You just think you've got it pegged. Like in the, in the lineup of Christian disciples, you're slightly behind these disciples and way ahead of the person you're dealing with. Number five, You become personally offended when your counsel isn't listened to. Your mom's asking you how to kind of deal with this kid issue. You are focused on this way of doing it. You tell them, they say, I'm going to try a different way. And you are personally offended because your identity is in you being the super mom and having the super advice. I, I see this with me. I get to do premarital counseling now. And one of the things God's broke me of is like, I have one marriage that 
functions the way it does, but there are a million ways that people can be married and do date nights and communicate and work out their budgets. Like, I am not the end-all, be-all of wisdom in this area. Number six, you often push your preferences just as much, if not more, than biblical principles. Your ways of doing Christianity get lined up right there with Scripture, and they get pushed in there with the gospel. Number seven, you refuse to make any provisions for your disciple, meaning she can't really meet because she's got a busy work schedule. Nope, if she was committed, she would be committed to this. No, you, you bend and you move and you adjust for the people that you love. Number eight, you fear that the disciple might become more godly and competent than you. One day, my son potentially is going to be more godly than me. Am I looking forward to that day? Or is my pride and my just blindness to my own sin just unable to see that day coming? Like, our goal is to see other people flourish. That's Christianity. Religion is you've got to flourish because God's eyeing all you guys. Christianity is Jesus flourished, all of us failed, so we can celebrate all the little things about everyone else around us. That is a free place to be. That's a great place to be. Here's kind of my little Jesus talk on the end of this. Jesus' recommendation. Keep belief in Jesus at the center of all your relationships in the church. Meaning, every person you meet with, are in a small group with, do a women's discipleship table with, or in an exodus group with, whatever it is, your goal for them is more belief, more trust, more faith, more assurance in Jesus. Not necessarily less cussing, less smoking, less drinking, although some of those may be good. It's do they believe Jesus? Is their Jesus so grand in their eyes? That's what we're after. Belief in Jesus. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me. So how do I cause someone to not believe in him? I shrink Jesus and I make him a side thing. You talk about Jesus, you praise Jesus, you worship Jesus together. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's it. Can I say Jesus anymore? Now here's where Jesus just brings out the hammer and goes to town on us. Next question. How do you create sin in your own life? Sorry, I just lost my, there we go. Number three, how do you create sin in your own life? So I'm going to read this again just so we can hear it. And this is the bulk of what Jesus wants to say. So go to verse 43. Let's stop talking about other people, Jesus says. Let's have a little chat about you. And he's going to triple the amount of time he's talked so far. So apparently focusing on ourselves is important. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What in your life right now is leading you into sin? The word here for sin is not the normal word for sin. The normal word for sin in the Bible is like an archer shooting and missing his target. This word for sin is you creating a path that's leading someone or yourself off kilter so that you will miss the target. Meaning it's like the very beginnings of sin. It's not adultery. It's you hanging out at your coworker's desk because you like how she encourages you. It's not bankruptcy and debt and all that. It's you spending hours and hours online just googly-eyed over stuff you don't have. 
Jesus says, whatever is causing you to sin, cut it off. He, he minces no words. He doesn't get cute. He goes straight forward. He says, if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. If your arm, cut it off. If your leg, cut it off. What's the hand represent? What you do. If anything in your life is going to lead you to go do something that's wrong or lead you away from Jesus, cut it off. Your foot, anywhere your feet are going to take you, where are the places that you go that's going to lead you into a place where you're ready to sin, cut it off. Eyes, where do your thoughts go? Your emotions, your daydreaming. What leads your imagination astray? Cut it off. Cut it off. Cut it off. Jesus says, cut it off, for it's better for you to live life without that thing than to go to hell with that thing. We have a lot of different people in here with a lot of different struggles. Everyone needs to answer this question for themselves in their own unique way. There's no blanket rule we can make to say how this applies across the board. But I know men that love Jesus and love their wife and love this church who don't have one of these. It's not because they don't have the money. They have the stupid little flip phone, the stupid little buttons, those stupid little things. I can't believe they still make those stupid little things. But I know grown men who have those by decision because they had to cut this off. I know women who probably shouldn't be on social media because it does not do anything good for you or your soul. I know men, the same thing. I was on Instagram for a bit, and then I, my wife kind of called me out. She's like, it seems kind of girly. I'm like, ah, I think it's cool. I'll keep doing it. And then I was at Valley, and I realized my Instagrams were mainly just my way to kind of show the world what a cool, unique, fun dad I was. Every moment with my kid that was amazing, I wanted to go, Chk. the world needs to know this, post. <laughs> Whatever it is. You've got to do the backtracking yourself and figure out, okay, here's sin. Okay, what's the beginning of sin? I need to get that out of my life because Jesus is so serious so that he's saying this could lead you to hell if you held on to this too long. Non-Christian in the room, you are holding on to sin right now. I know this because the Bible says everyone's born in sin. You are holding, you are coddling sin, and you are walking towards hell. Jesus says, cut it off. By God's grace, I will remove all the guilt, all the shame, all everything from that sin for you, but you've got to cut it off. This is serious. Cut it off. I hope like your creative juices are flowing in the direction of you thinking through your own life and what needs to change. Here's Jesus' recommendation. It's pretty straightforward. Cut it off, no matter how important how useful, how profitable, or how enjoyable it may be for you. Young people, your parents get to make all the decisions and do the thinking for you for about 18 years. And then you're out. Are you thinking through what you need to cut off? Retired people, you no longer have to work. You get to enjoy life in a different sort of way. Are you thinking through what needs to be cut out of your life because it is not leading you towards Jesus? Married men and women, are you thinking about what's leading you astray both from Jesus and your spouse? Cut it off. Jesus does not play around. Cut it off. Just cut it off. I'm pleading with you because I know some of you are like, maybe, maybe this is Jesus warning me about that thing. No, I'm not. He, cut it off. 
I promise you Jesus is talking to you in this moment. That's why he spoke to these disciples. That's why he's speaking to us. Cut it off. What's our last question? We'll end on this one. How do you create a gospel flavor that others crave? Here's how it ends. Again, it seems random, but I think it fits. Verse 49, Jesus ends with this. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Everyone will be salted with fire. What is he saying? I think the Bible, I don't think, but I know the Bible calls Christians the salt of the the earth. He's just saying part of this removal and this amputation is God's way of salting you even more than you're already salted by God's grace with his Holy Spirit indwelling you. You saying no to that iPhone is going to make you more salty for the world to enjoy. You removing that thing that brings about all that pride is going to make you more salty. How do I increase saltiness? One of the ways is I remove stuff in your life that's diminishing your flavor for the rest of the world. Saltiness, keep it in you. We are to be at peace with one another, and that's how he ends. He just told me to chop off my arm, my leg, and gouge out my eye, and then he ends with saying, be at peace with one another. Does it fit? Absolutely. Because Jesus is saying, do the hard work of examining your own heart. And then go out, and you're going to be way less, you're going to have way less energy and zeal to go attack everyone else because you just emptied yourself on your own sin. And you're just going to want to go be at peace with one another. Here's the recommendation I kind of put into this one. Use peace as an assessment tool in your Christian growth. Meaning, in your redemption community, your RC, in your workplace, in your Bible study, in your girls group, in your mom's day out group, If you remove you, is there more peace and harmony or less? Are you bringing peace to the areas and the situations and the relationships that God has you in? Think about, are you bringing peace to those areas where there's a ton of diversity and a ton of disagreement with you and the people of the group? If you can bring peace into that, that's when you're starting to see some Christian growth. You're in a group with people who think goofy things about God, who disagree with God, whatever it may be, and you bring peace there. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. That's the goal. You are, you are bringing flavor. When you are removed from that group, you are going to be missed, not just because you're the truth bomber, but because there is something sweet and enjoyable and flavorful about your life. That's how Jesus ends this. So his goal isn't removing stuff from our life and just having us sit in this lonely, joyless life. It's removing stuff from our life so we can go out and be a joyful presence in the world. Now, my wife loves flavors. She has like the most incredible palate I've ever seen. She can taste something and know, this has too much paprika, this has whatever. She can just spot. And she kind of does this thing now when something's missing. She'll go, and I know a flavor's missing. Uh, my palate's not that good, so I don't know what it is. So she always, she doesn't, that's my best impersonation. But there are monks who take this passage literally and have removed every sort of enjoyment in their life and go live a monk life who don't know, love, and treasure Jesus. There are Mormons who have removed every sort of impurity from their home and are living this life and have cut things off who don't know, love, and treasure Jesus. What's, what's the gospel ingredient that's missing here? What did the disciples not get? Is they're bickering about status in the kingdom and missing their own hearts? What are they missing? The same thing we all miss. One simple truth. Jesus in all of this, in the hard sayings and the sweet sayings and the loving sayings and the statements that just make you go, ah, and the statements like this that make you go, Jesus is 100% for you. 
That's it. We're going to sing a song. God is for you because of Jesus. He is 100% for you. Everything he does is for you. How can we be convinced of that? Because there's parents in here. I said, do you love your kid? Absolutely. I'm for my kid. And then I could meet with kids in this room and teenagers in this room. Are your parents, do your parents love you? Yeah. Are they for you? Ah, I don't know. Because they don't see sacrifice. They don't see relationship. They don't see conversations. They don't see you laying down your preferences, your needs, your wants in this life for their good. Jesus laid it all down. I just got to see one of my favorite movies of all time sitting in a doctor's office. Aladdin. Such a good movie. Three wishes. And Aladdin says, oh, I'll just make one of them. I'll set you free. And the whole movie is, he didn't do it when he should have. You know how it goes. Genie is still a genie, still in bondage, still just the genie that grants wishes. At the end, Aladdin says, I give you freedom. How does the genie know Aladdin's form? He gave up a wish that could have got him anything. What did Jesus give up? Heaven. His kingship for a season. His comfort. Like, I refused to give my comfort. He gave up his comfort. He gave up everything for us. And he died naked on the cross because he's for us. So when he tells us, get that out of your life, we can say, I trust him. I've seen him give up so much for me. That's the gospel. Don't miss Jesus in your religious removal of stuff in your life. Jesus is the reason, and it's because he's for you, and he's for me way more than any of us will ever understand. Let's pray. God, thank you for just the Bible and the way you've talked to us and communicated with us, and the fact that it still does catch me off guard sometimes, which means I, I don't have this thing pegged that you say harsh things that we need to wrestle with, and not because you're trying to come across as tougher than you are, but you're trying to make a point to the people you love. God, by your spirit, move in the hearts of the people here, myself included. Help us to remove what needs to be removed. Help us to celebrate little things that we see in others. And help us to constantly go back to you, who is so for us, that no matter what it was you gave up, you did it, as Hebrews tells us, with joy. God, make us that sort of people. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.